All right. I love it. When that's over, it's like musical chairs. You got to run, find your seat. It's great. Um, I know this would be hard to believe, and students up here, you'd be shocked. Like, I had my sixth grandchild this week, was born this week, and that. School, the most, I know it's shocking that I have grandchildren, but I, I do. Um, the most impressive part of the birth I told my daughter is that I watched the other three kids for five hours while Cheryl went to the, that, that was, I thought that was as much work as she did, really, but uh, I survived, the kids all survived, Cheryl's friends called, they thought I couldn't handle it. God, I got six kids. So literally, when Cheryl walked out the door to go to the hospital, first child says what? I got to go poo-poo. <laughs> By the time I got that one figured out, second child has not got to that stage yet and filled a diaper. They were just initiating me straight in. So we've been doing this for 20 years, and when I started, uh, I had a one-year-old myself. And for some of us that have been here all 20 years, we've just been walking together. We do all this together. We, we uh, celebrate our children, our grandchildren, and, and this is a family. It's a family of folks that, that do life together. We've been faithful at a mission, a bunch of us from the very beginning, faithful at a mission, trying to continuously impact our radius for the glory of God, which includes our families and stuff that's going on in our families and our jobs. And certainly, as Jeremy uh, tries to, to entice you to join a group if you ever, if you haven't already. Really, what we want you to do is be known and know people because it's just this great walk of doing life together um, as we represent Jesus. So uh, we celebrate our 20th birthday party uh, next Sunday night. If you're a partner, man, if you haven't signed up, let's go, right? Like, I mean, Sheely's is going to be there. You're going to get a free T-shirt. I'm not trying to bribe you or anything, but we, we're going to, we'll tell stories about the 20 stories from this last year of just us being faithful to the call that God has given us. We're going to talk about some building stuff that's coming up, so you get to hear the next buildings. we got three projects on, on the docket, and uh, we're going to announce our, mo- our most exciting thing at a partner meeting is always announcing the next church plant. So we'll announce that next Sunday night. So if you miss... And you're a partner. That's on you. If you're not a partner, what are you doing? Let's go, right? Anyway, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll forget the sales pitch. We decided to do a series right here at the beginning of the fall because it's kind of where we all set our schedules and uh, try to lead us as Radius just back to what we've always done. We call it a figure eight. We call the series My Radius, and it's, it's a figure eight. It's just kind of how Radius has operated for 20 years and we finally put it on paper maybe four or five years ago. If you were with us last year, we started at the home. The home is the middle. It's the center of all of our operation. If, you, if you've been with us for a while, the most important thing to us is your walk with Jesus. So your relationship with Jesus is, should be transforming. It should be changing you. And over the course of time, if you're a husband or a wife or a child or a grandparent, it ought to change the people in your home. If you're single, folks, and, and like you've got a roommate or you've got folks around, around you, it ought to impact the people in your home that you've been transformed. And so eventually, that little home of yours in your subdivision ought to glow with the good things that God's done to you. We always wanted to start at Radius with the B. Who are you before we talk about what we're going to do? So we started last week. We, if you missed it, you can go back and listen to it. We, uh, we started with the home. We really want to land the fact that, 
that we want to be transformed. If you've got questions like, how, how do I do that? Just, let's, let's talk about it. Ask it. Write it on a card. We'll, we'll get back to you, and we, we can chat it up. But this week, we really want to start about talking about what we do, because if you're transformed and your home changes, then it ought to spill over onto the people in your radius, your neighborhood, your, your uh, co-workers, the ball field. All of that is your radius. It's the people in your sphere of influence. The very earliest days of Radius, we had just come up with the name, and uh, we just named elders. This church is led by a group of men, we, elders, and so folks would come ask the elders questions, and they would ask questions. I don't know how much you've been a part of church, but people like to ask crazy questions like, what's your stance on blank, right? Whether it be something non-biblical, like politics, whether it be something biblical, and they use big words like, Premillennialist, I can barely like roll my tongue right to say it right, or 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 speaking in tongues. So, like people get all, so they come and ask one of our elders. Our elders were brand new with this, and here's here's the reply: What's your neighbor's name? It's amazing how many people have questions like that and don't know their neighbor's name. As a matter of fact, it was like it was like this great tool in every elder's pocket. Like when somebody really wants to ask something, wants to know what the Greek is about this, then we say, What's your neighbor's name? Because if you be, like if you are walking with the Lord, then you ought to know who your neighbors are. And, and eventually, you ought to fall in love with them, even if they're knuckleheads, right? Because you, you care for them. It is, it is our philosophy of ministry first that you would be changed and that it impacts your family or whoever you would define as home at this point. And then it would spill over onto your neighbors, and we named ourselves after it. So a little bit of share on my story. We uh, started our first church in our late 20s, and it grew really rapidly. We didn't know this because we were clueless, but in about three years, we went from just me and the family to there was 1,000 people at a little, little, little print shop in, in Clemson. We went and planted again. We planted again our third church, and over, after two years, we went from zero to zero. So, so we had some success, and we've had some, some, quote, failure from church. But what was interesting about the third church was we knew every one of our neighbors. Cheryl prayed for them by name. She knew their kids. She knew them way better than I am. She's a little more extroverted than I am. She, she knew all the neighbors, but I knew everybody at the ball field. We, we just had changed. We could get a lot of people come to church. But by the third church, we were frustrated with just having people come. We really wanted to mobilize people, and we, we, we started to learn. Cheryl really taught me this. We need to be responsible for our radius first before we start bringing people together. And so when we got the radius, this is the first, fourth church Cheryl and I, uh, fifth church Cheryl and I have been a part of starting. Um, we really want to combine those things. Want this to be a place where you, you feel comfortable inviting a friend, and we can have a good time together when we gathered. We were hoping that our core, partners specifically here, our core would know and love their neighbors. So at the very beginning of Radius, we'd have these little parties. We call them HD parties, and at the parties, we'd tell stories about how we were engaging with our neighbors. People who were there, there was probably 20 or 30 there real early. One night we got there, and we asked for stories, and nobody had a story of engaging their neighbors. It was a bad night. I flipped out a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I was so mad. Like, why, why are we even doing this? At church, we don't know our neighbors. It doesn't make any sense. 
And so through the years, we try to stay true to that. And here we are, room full. We're already talking about planting another church out of Lexington. Next service is usually even more full than this. We put more chairs in this week. But if we're not engaging our neighbors, we don't think this is a success. And when I say neighbors, not just the guy next door to you, the guy on your job, and the guy where you play. And so we decided to keep teaching ourselves to love our neighbors. In the earliest days, I saw... Lil CB right here, her dad, you weren't even born yet, your dad thought that everybody in the world loved Otis Spunkmeyer cookies. Does he still eat these? No, all right. Your dad loves cookies, though. Yeah, all right. He's back in the back. I can say whatever I want to about him. All right. <laughs> he loves cookies, so he thought, let's teach our people to love their neighbors. And so I don't remember. He could walk out here and tell us a 1,000, I think. We only had like 100 people at the church. He bought a 1,000 Spunkmeyer cookies, Otis Spunkmeyer cookies, which he said at the time were the best. And we gave them out to everybody, and they're supposed to go home and give them to the neighbor. We did some of the dumbest things, trying to emphasize that it's our job to know our neighbors. At one point, we did movies in the park, downtown Columbia. I still don't know why we did that since we were in Lexington, but we did it. Then we, we threw this massive party. We'd have 2,000 people there, get popcorn. We, we just wanted to mobilize ourselves and remind ourselves so that we'd actually be active in our real neighborhood. One of the dumbest things we ever did we're right up here on 378. We bought like 500 roses on Valentine's Day, and we stopped cars and gave them to every lady that we met. Now, looking back on that, I'm like, that is creepy. I don't know why we thought that was a good idea. But we did it. We did it. We did anything to remind ourselves. So when we, when we kick off the PB&J project, which I'm going I'm to remind you about when, right before you walk out the door, when we do something like this, we're just trying to remind ourselves that this is who we are, and this is who Jesus asked us to be. He put us on this earth to love our neighbors, which often means we sacrifice in order to love our neighbors. If you want to get in on this later, I'll explain a little bit more. But I worked a deal this week. I went up to Marty's Car Wash. You're going to get one of these on the way out the door. I went up to Marty's Car Wash, and I negotiated a deal. So they have their, I call it the premium protect. I have no idea what they call it. It's their best car wash, but premium just always sounds good when you're, when you're selling something. So they cut it in half. They cut the price in half. And so we're, we're going to give you one of these, and we'll just go give it to a neighbor and say, hey, I just want you to go have a really, a, a, get your car clean. I know some of your neighbors, like, they really need their car clean. And some of y'all's neighbors, like, their cars are so nice, they'll be afraid to run it through Marty's. All right, so, like, we got this variety show. All we're trying to do is have fun loving our neighbors. It's not that complicated. We're doing it across all campuses. It's 3,000 people at a Radius Church last week. That's a lot of noise. That's a lot of love for neighbors. Kind of excited about how it's going to go down. So that's what we do this time of year, and then we celebrate our birthday party. We try to remind ourselves who we are as we never want to get away from. It. Let me pray, and we'll jump into this passage that I think will teach us a little bit about our world. Ah, Lord, you know me and us and how quickly our minds and our eyes and all of our senses can get focused on ourselves. You know how quickly we can be proud and get lost as we run through life and not see anyone around us, we, we say we're sorry, Lord. It's really fun to be a part of a body like this. That I get to hear stories really weekly of people 
loving people in their radius. It inspires me to do the same. But we really want this to be a community of folks that loves well. And then we want this town, this zip code, to feel our love, Lord. All sorts of ways. So we pray that you would give us energy to that. That you would open our eyes so that we could see well and represent you well. Lord, we want to look like you, Jesus. We're so flawed. And yet your spirit gives us this amazing uh, level of light that we didn't have, that we want to share with this dark place. Teach us from your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. I got a crazy story from the Old Testament. So if you're new to church, the Old Testament is at the beginning of your Bible. It starts with Genesis, and it goes all the way to this book called Malachi. So we call the second part of the Bible the New Testament. I always like to say it's old too, right? Like it's 2,000 years old. The Old Testament is just older, right? So I like being around people older than me because they call me young, right? All these guys up here call me old, right? That's just the way it is. So you got an Old Testament and a New Testament. New Testament's newer than the Old Testament. The Old Testament is uh, primarily the first half of the Old Testament is uh, a narrative. It kind of captures history. It starts with creation, and it goes all the way to Nehemiah and Esther. So in, in most of the Old Testament follows a nation called Israel. There's some crazy books in there. There's some crazy stories in there. This is one of them. This is in a book in the Bible called 2 Kings. So anytime there's a 2 Kings, that means there's a 1 Kings. 2 Corinthians, there's a 1 Corinthians. That's how the Bible works. It'll stack to. And it's really the story of the Israelite kings. And it'll break down different things that happened in their rule. It was a way for the people of Israel to look back on their history. And we would look back on this as God's uh, word and try to be taught from it. There are some crazy stories. As a matter of fact, if you're new to following Jesus, I would encourage you not to read First or Second Kings. Like, let's get Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John down, and then we'll work our way back to Kings. One of the very first guys that I um, hung out with when we started Radius, Jonathan Patton, he's out at Centerville. We started hanging out, and every week we were getting together, and I was just reading through the Bible, and I was in this part of the Bible. I thought, why don't you just read what I'm reading? So we showed up to the next week. He was a brand-new believer, and he goes, man. There's a lot of killing in the Bible. <laughs> I'm like, good point. Let's go. Let's read, let's read the Gospels. Let's learn about Jesus, and we'll get back to this. So this is an important part of the Bible. It just isn't where you would start. Second Kings, there's a uh, story captured that is heavy and dark. It's got a little comedy in it. Let me just give you the, the outline of it, and then we'll, we'll read a few verses. There's, there's an area, a region which would have been northern Israel, in this particular case, is called Samaria. And um, they have, one of the cities in Samaria has been besieged by the Arameans, which is just enemies uh, in that region. So they besieged, it says the Arameans got all their people together. Back in the day when you went to fall, fight, you had your army, but you also, you just bring all the men. Every, everybody went to fight. The Arameans brought everybody, and they besieged the city. You, I don't know if you've seen this in the movies, whatever. The city would have a wall. And then if, if an invading army would come, they would just shut everything down because generally the crops were outside the wall. Like everybody lived inside the wall for protection, but a lot of the food was outside the wall. And so you'd have some preparations inside in case something like this happened. But as you read this story, the Ara Arameans, like they've besieged the city. It's been a long time. And so the Bible actually says that the Sumerians inside, like they ain't got nothing to eat. 
So they call it a famine, not one caused by the weather, but one caused by a besieging army. And it's getting rough inside. I'm not even going to read a couple of verses because they are rough. What people are doing in response to not having food. It says that a donkey's head, it, it, it prices, you worried about how much gas costs, right? Like we worried about paying 50 more cents for gas. They're worried, they're trying to buy a donkey's head, which there's almost no meat in, and the price of it is just ridiculous. You talk about inflation, you, you got to have a famine, inflation's out of control, and folks have nothing to eat, and some of the things they're doing even turn into some cannibalism that is just gross to read. It's desperate and it's dark. And there's a prophet on the scene. And the prophet uh, has, we assume based on the text, that the prophet Elisha has told the king, hey, don't surrender. Like, stay in the city and wait. And the king and the pressure of all the darkness and the desperation, the king is, I don't know how you do sometimes when things are bad. You're just looking for somebody to blame. He is so mad at Elisha for telling him not to not to actually give the people over to the Arameans because they're starving to death. And you got this scene where Elisha tells the king uh, toward the very end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 that one more day, tomorrow, you're going to be able to have food at a regular price that you would pay at Publix, right? You get Cheerios, buy one, get one tomorrow. That's, that's how it's going to be. It's going to go right back to how it was tomorrow. And the king mocks him, and some of his servants mock him. It's, it's just this really interesting, harsh story to read in the Bible. And we're going to pick it up at verse 3 of 2 Kings chapter 7. And it's interesting how the story is told. It actually feels a little bit like you got this super dark situation, and then the Bible brings a little comedy in, into the whole thing. Here it is. This is uh, verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Leprosy, horrible disease, certainly in ancient times. It's a skin disease. Oftentimes, if you had any skin disease, you'd be lumped in with the leprous folks. But leprosy itself would eventually kill all your nerve endings. It, it, was, it was a horrible... We, we still have it today, but it's very treatable. Uh, so these four men had leprosy. In essence, they've been banished, and they look at each other. And if you can imagine, I don't know how you imagine, they're probably living in a hut outside the wall... And I don't, I don't know why, but I have them in my head sitting around the table. And, and because of their situation, like, they probably become buddies in their suffering. And I got a feeling they're, like, just cutting up. Sitting at the table, and they say, why should we sit here waiting to die? <laughs> like, they're all dying, right? Like, it's, you can see it on their skin. Some of them have probably lost their fingers. If you've seen some leprous folks, they'll lose their nose, and they'll lose parts of the body. It'll eventually... Uh, because of the nerve endings stuff, it'll eventually affect their whole body. So I can see the four of them laughing like a lot of dudes in here would do if, if you were up against it. They laugh, and then they got this little dialogue, which I think it's awesome. We will starve if we stay here, but there's famine in the city. We'll starve if we go back there. So we might as well go out and surrender to the Aramean army. If they let us live, so much better. But if they kill us, we would have died anyway. And I can imagine, this is just how guys do, ladies. I don't know why when we're really scared, we laugh. <laughs> they just laugh. The, the King James actually says, uh, I, I love the way it writes it, we would but die. <laughs> it's this just, they're, they're dealing with death. We got four options. 
We can stay here and die. We can go back to the city where there's no food and die. We could go over there and see the Aramean army that's got us besieged, and they might kill us, and we'd die. But there's a chance. There might be a chance that they would have pity on us and throw us some food, and we would live. It's this really interesting dialogue between men who have a very clear understanding that their life is going to end at some point. I couldn't help but read that and think of you and I as followers of Jesus. When the King James says we shall but die, all of us have had to deal with that, those of you that know Jesus. We actually come to grips with the fact that not we're physically dying, because we all know that in this room, right? All of us are going to die. But that we were spiritually dead. There was this moment, and we represent it often on a Sunday morning. We're going to do it next Sunday morning. We're going to clear out these seats right here, and we're going to put a baptism pool, and we've got a group of folks that want to be baptized publicly. Uh, Romans chapter 6 actually says that they're going to be baptized into death. A lot of times when I want to explain baptism, I go, what would happen if I put you under the water and I held you there? I'm probably not strong enough to hold you there, but if I could, if I held you there, what would happen? You drown, you die. It's also cool because you disappear. You disappear from sight, and then we have this celebration. When you come up, then it's as if you rose from the dead. Who else did that? Jesus died, was buried, and he rose from the grave. So baptism is this representation of that. But I love the line in Romans that says you are baptized into death. The followers of Jesus are supposed to get death. Like we actually celebrated death every Sunday. What a weird group of people. But it gives you this advantage on the rest of the world. These, these four lepers, they have this advantage because they've already dealt with death. They already know they're dying. They got nothing to lose. We shall but die. And so they do something. The Bible for folks that believe in Jesus says, says that you have to repent and then believe. There's, repentance is really accepting the fact that I'm dead. I'm a sinner. It separates me from God, so I'm spiritually dead. And so then I cry out to God and believe, and he sets me free. So of all the people in the world that ought to be humble, it should be us. We ought to be the most humble people in town. It just ends up, sadly, certainly in recent history, that nobody views us as humble. Everybody views the church as arrogant. Did we forget that we were dead in our sins? Did we forget we were broken? We had nothing to offer. We had nothing to look forward to but death. And now all of a sudden we often are, at least we're portrayed, and I honestly believe we earn that reputation like we're better than everybody else. No, we're the same. We were facing death and they're facing death. God just happened to explained to us that we were dead spiritually and he moved you to belief and so there should be this great humility which positions us in an amazing way to love our radius like nobody else can because we're humble not because we have all the answers we got a simple answer and the answer is jesus verses go on and explain what happened so it says so at twilight the four leprous guys at twilight, they set out for the camp of the Arameans, but when they came to the edge of the camp, no one was there. 
For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and galloping of horses and sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel has hired the Hittites and the Egyptians to attack us. They cried to one another, and so they panicked, and they ran in the night, abandoning their tents and horses and donkeys and everything else as they fled for their lives. <laughs> it's a pretty amazing story, and I believe it's the purpose of the story, to demonstrate how God can save people anytime he wants. The story in 2 Kings is about God's power, represented through the mouth of Elijah, but through God's miraculous activity. God doesn't even need to cause a hurricane or earthquake, but though he can, he can just make you think that you're in danger. He just does as he pleases. So this whole army just gets upset, thinking that chariots are coming. They're hearing in their ears, and they freak out, and they run away. It's this amazing miracle in the history of Israel, which is why it's recorded in 2 Kings. But our four boys, uh, they don't know this. They're going to see the Aramean army, and they're just hoping that they're going to throw them potato to eat, just throw them something. Hey, y'all stay away. You got that disease you're going to see, but they could get something to eat and maybe live a little longer. They're also wondering whether it's their last day on earth whether they're going to be killed. And so they, they roll up, and I, I just can't get over this nothing-to-lose attitude. I kept thinking about myself, do I walk through my life thinking I have a lot to lose? Is that what keeps me from doing some of the things that I really want to do? These guys are over it. And so they approach the tents. Verse 8 says, when the men of leprosy arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another, eating and drinking wine, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and hid it. Everybody, you can picture it. They come into the tent. You peek into the first tent. You wonder if there's going to be a dude in there with an AK, right? Like you're pulling back like, is this it? And they're like, ooh, that's a, that's a big old chicken right there, right? Like, and, 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 and yelling to your buddies, and everybody comes running. We all pile in. We're eating. And you're like, is that wine? Well, let's go, and we're passing around. You ain't worried about germs. You're passing around, right? Like, and they're just celebrating, and, and then all of a sudden, they're like, hey, people are eventually going to get here. So they start taking the golden stuff, and they start burying it so that we can come back and find it after people are, are eventually gone. So they, they just, I mean, it's a party. It's the ultimate party. You had nothing. Now you have everything. Anybody do the lottery thing in your head? Right? Like when you, you wonder if you're going to make your car payment, you're like, what if we won the lottery? And like your, your biggest dream is paying off the car. <laughs> like it's a, yeah, I pay off the car. And then you go down your list. And you probably, some of y'all pulled out a piece of paper and wrote what you would do, right? Like, this is what I do. That's what they're doing. They rolled into camp and they're partying in verse 9. Finally, they said to each other, this is not right. This is a day of good news. It's powerful, Right? I just need to tell you, they understand the good news because they also understood the bad news. They understand they are about to die, which made the good news even better. And so they celebrated and then very quickly began to understand, if I know this to be true, all of this wealth is now in my hands. We're rich. We're full i got to tell somebody. I cannot keep this to myself. It's an amazing line, NLT. I love the translation. This is not right. This is their good news. 
over my few weeks off in the summer, I, I uh, journaled a good bit, and I, I was reading through the Psalms, and there'd be this regular moment where I'd read something, and I'd recognize how much I've been given because I believed in Jesus. Like this freedom and this peace that I have is clearly not existent for a lot of our world. That doesn't make me better. It makes me privileged. I've been given this gift. And so there's a celebration. It makes us want to worship. In a minute, we're going to sing some more. And you can sing as loud as you want. It probably should pull us to sing. Some of us that don't even sing, it make us want to sing at times because we're privileged, because we've been given so much. But what these guys recognize within a 24-hour period of time is that um, this is the day of good news, and we aren't sharing it with anyone. We're just taking it all in. When we started Radius, we knew we were going to have some good times of worship, but we did not want to keep it for ourselves. We want to give it away. We want to keep giving it away. So if you're new here, thank you for coming. Part of our goal was for this thing to continue to give it away. We did not want to hoard the goodness of God and somehow become arrogant about what we know. We want to take what we know and give it away because it's so good goes on to say, if we wait until morning, I love this, they feel the pressure so intently, they're afraid that they will be disciplined in some way because of them hoarding the good things of God. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come on, let's go back and tell the people in the palace. You ever feel that? You ever feel that pressure with the good news? You ever feel like, I, I, I should have said something? I should have stopped and helped. Anybody? I'll do that when I get older and learn some more. They're overwhelmed with joy of the riches that they've been entrusted to at this moment, and they've got to share the good news. What really frustrates me about the church in the United States is we are way more versed in the bad news. You hang out with Christians, what do they talk about? All the bad things that are happening around them. Somehow it puffs them up. It makes them feel better. We have so much good news. As a matter of fact, the word gospel means good news. It's the core of what we're all about. We're supposed to carry it with us. If you've been at Radius long at all, Cheryl told me there's no way you can preach the Good Samaritan today because she knew where we were on the, the, the figure eight because the tops of the world. Every time I talk about the world, I preach the Good Samaritan. If you've been here a long time, you're like, please don't preach the Good Samaritan. I know that story. I've heard it 50 times. If you haven't, I'm sorry. Cheryl robbed you of the experience of the Good Samaritan. But <laughs> the Good Samaritan has kind of been our go-to when we try to explain who Radius is, that we want to love our neighbors. It's an interaction between Jesus and a lawyer, some, somebody who knows the Old Testament inside and out, and Jesus explaining to him, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul who you be, and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's what you do. I'll read you. Cheryl, I'm just reading a couple of little things out here. <laughs> it's this Samaritan. Long story. I'm not even going to go into that. He sees the guy who's been robbed. And there's, there's a couple lines in there. He says, when he saw the man, I love that, you have to have your head up. And when you have good news embedded in your soul, it should make your head come up to see what's going on around you. Then it says that the Samaritan, he felt compassion for him. 
He didn't have to study how to be a good neighbor. He just was a good neighbor. I hate it when somebody says, I don't have anybody to love. I'm like, your head ain't up, and your heart isn't right. Because if your head's up and your heart's right, there's always somebody to love. There's always a neighbor. There's always somebody who needs something. It says that he going over to him, so his feet had to move. He had to do something. Then it says that he soothed his wounds, which means if you want to love your neighbors, you can't be a germaphobe, right? You got to understand that you're already dead. If you're afraid of one, some of the best parts of church history is when the church stays in the middle of a pandemic. They don't prep and run away. They stay with all the people that are dying and soothe their wounds. It's what we do. Because we're all, we know we've already died and been brought to life in Christ. If you know the story, I, I won't go too far. He says put him on his own donkey. Like, he, didn't go, he didn't call Uber to get him where he had to go because he didn't want to get no mess in his car. He put him on his own donkey. And then he got him to the hospital to the end. He paid two silver coins to pay for it. So he sacrificed on behalf of somebody else in his radius. And finally, he told the owner of the inn, I'll pay you next time I'm here if he spends any more. Man, what, what, if, what if this dude does something wrong? Like he, he checks into pay-per-view in the inn. You got to pay the pay-per-view, man? Like you're actually giving up your advantage. You don't know who this, what this, if he's a knucklehead or not. You don't know what he's going to do, but this guy's like, I'm, I'm going to finish. I'm going to love this guy all the way to the end. Jesus is like, that's what it looks like to love your neighbor. It starts with your heart which changes the way you live. So in this passage with, the, uh, with our lepers, they go back, verse 10, they went back to the city and they told the gatekeepers what had happened. We went out to the Aramean camp and they said no one was there. The horses and the donkeys were uh, tethered to the tents and they were all in order, but there wasn't a single person around. And the gatekeepers, it's a beautiful saying, turned to the city that is starving to death. And shouts the good news. Story goes on. You can read it. The king freaks out a little bit about it. They go check, check to make sure that it's true. And then they open the gates. And one of the great doubters of God's powers opens the gate. And the people rush out to the food. And they trample him to death. It's like this prophetic moment where you doubt the power of God. He can flip the script in 24 hours. He was a living example of it. It's uh, often, it's common to us as believers to doubt our ability to share the good news because we don't know enough. We're afraid we'll get exposed in that moment. This is a beautiful picture of how God, in his great power and desire to save, uses whoever he pleases. There's this willingness question. There's this humility, this understanding of how little I know that actually makes me better at delivering the good news. I want that for us. That's who Radius is supposed to be. So when we look at the figure eight, we want to keep growing. We want to be able to take people down the road that we know so you can always take somebody who's behind you the next step. One of my favorite scenes in Forrest Gump, which I didn't love that movie, but when he, he, he's, uh, he's under fire. You know, he's in the battle, and he's run, he runs out. He finds his way out of the, the jungle. Then he starts running back in and getting guys. Forrest wasn't the brightest dude right in the world, but Forrest could get back and find the guys and get them back out because he knew the way. 
He didn't know everything. He didn't know the military plan for everything, but he knew the way. He just took them the way he went, which is our job right here in this radius. You and I are ambassadors for Christ in Lexington. Oh, wherever you live. Second Corinthians says this, and we'll wrap up. Verse 18, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling, restoring relationship, uh, people to him. said he gave that task to me and you. I don't know why. He, he, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us the wonderful message of reconciliation, restoring relationship. So we are Christ, what? Ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper is, right? It's this moment where you and I recognize that Christ who never sinned was made an offering for our sin so that we could be made right to God. And he's saying, now that you know that, now that you walked up to the camp knowing you were dead and been given so much, tell somebody. For us, at the beginning of Radius, we wanted to just get to the point where we knew and loved our neighbor, and then we want to graduate to the part where we actually tell them about Jesus the good news that's transformed us. It's interesting, uh, standing up here talking about the Lord's Supper every Sunday, which is something that we do weekly if you're new. We love it. Something the church did weekly in the very earliest parts. We actually celebrate a sacrifice. Some of y'all got a cross around your neck like as a representation of Jesus and your relationship to Jesus. It's interesting that our symbol, the one that's best known, the cross, it's all about his sacrifice. We'll do a baptism next week, which is all about his sacrifice. So this is expectation. If he names us as ambassadors to represent him, that you and I would sacrifice so that our neighbors, so that our town would know the good news. If you're here, you had not yet really figured out this thing about Jesus. Hey, we love you. We love that you're here. Take your time. Process. But we've been given this great gift. We we hope that he'll help you understand. Jesus, we love you. You're worthy of our worship. We sing these songs because, uh, one, we need to be reminded of who you are. You know us. We get distracted as we hustle. So even as we sing these words and reflect on them, for some of us, make ourselves do something we haven't done any other time of the week, sing. We want to do more than sing. We want to worship. So move us there, please, Lord. As we come up and take bread and juice, we celebrate, Lord, your sacrifice. Meet us at that table. Explain the sacrifice to us again. Help us rest in your deep love for us. Just for these few minutes together, Lord. And please... Help us overflow into our radius as you remind us of that deep rest you trusted us with. We want it for our neighbors, Lord. Give us favor as we love our neighbors, even with these, this goofy little idea of car washes, Lord. We, we, we want our neighbors to see who you are. 
In Jesus' name, amen.